Welcome everyone to the Brandon Adams podcast. This is episode 31. I have with me Barton Wang. Barton, this is our third time together. Your your episodes have been exceedingly popular. How's it going today? Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to see you. So when we left last time, uh, you were thinking about launching a newsletter. Rather, you had planned to launch a newsletter. Now the newsletter is out. It seems that it has a good bit of traction. Um, by the way, I should do a standard disclaimer now. Nothing that we're going to talk about is investment advice. Um, I believe your newsletter does talk about sort of outlook for S&P and stuff like that. That's not territory that the show ever gets into, but nothing is uh, investment advice. Um, so tell me how uh, the decision came about to launch the newsletter. I take it that um, once your once your Twitter profile gained uh, 30K plus followers and your tweets started gaining exceptional traction, the thought crossed your mind, all right, how to professionalize this a bit. And the newsletter was uh, a natural way. Um, how has it gone so far? Uh, it's, been, it's been going pretty well. Uh, it's uh, good to not to think about the virus anymore, now that uh, a lot of us are vaccinated. And uh, what's really interesting right now in the market is that the monetary policy and the fiscal policy of the government has been influencing the market a lot. And uh, very recently in the uh, second half of February and throughout March, we've seen a lot of influence, direct influence from the uh, Fed, from the uh, Treasury and from the uh, with GFD, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the, those guys who, who underwrite the, the mortgage-backed securities, they have been playing an outsized role in determining the day-to-day -day market direction, which is fascinating because it happened before, back in 2018, when we had the quantitative tightening last time when the Fed was reducing the balance sheet size. But this time, we're increasing the balance sheet size at the Fed, and surprisingly, the market has went into a uh, some kind of a regime when the day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week movement was very intimately coupled with the day-to-day -day change of what Fed and what Treasury has been doing to their balance sheet. They're, they've been throwing out hundreds of billions of dollars out for stimulus and for settlement purposes on certain days, and that immediately move the market by, um, you know, two to 3%. And that just fascinates me. And I think that's a very interesting market regime that a lot of uh, market can, a lot of uh, money can be made if these, uh, these moves are captured and forecast ahead of time. So since I have built this model for quite a few years and I uh, decided to uh, launch this into a service, which also sharpens my own thinking because if you, when you write a newsletter, you have to do your research really carefully and make sure you understand everything and communicate in a, in a easy to digest way for people to understand what is behind the scene, what is the farming system being working for the, system, for the uh, market. Yeah, so it wasn't an accident that you established a, a large and devoted Twitter following. You uh, tended to make short and medium term calls that came to fruition. Um, and the logic behind it made a lot of sense. The fact that, uh, 
monetary and fiscal policy would be a, a huge driver in stocks. It, it, it made a lot of sense. Um, I want to, I want to discuss some underlying assumptions of the model. Okay. You're saying that short-term movements in monetary and fiscal policy affect short-term stock behavior. Um, right. I, I was hoping we could go through possibly an illustrative example. Um, we had this sort of black swan event recently of, um, I believe the pronunciation is Archegos Capital. Yes, that that's right? right. So Archegos Capital, um, a family office that really no one had ever heard of before it blew up. It blew up in very dramatic fashion and it was it was quite a story because it was literally just a pinprick that did it right it wasn't it wasn't like oh we had we had these six sigma moves in markets and this the funds got caught the wrong way and blew up it was it was really like a pinprick basically um so this family office that basically had no need to lever itself um they had enough money for many many generations um decided to lever itself in extreme and blew up and part of the story was that the family office had a a large desire to gamble and the and the gamble was being strongly accommodated by investment banks providing right. providing leverage right um so it seems to me this is an interesting illustration because your, your theory kind of relies on the idea that speculators will take the credit that's available and put it into financial markets. Is that a fair statement? Your, your, um, your view of the world, which I take to be correct, um, is that the reason that monetary and fiscal policy drives market movements in the short term is because it affects basically liquidity provision for major banks and or the the liquidity that major banks are providing to uh, hedge funds and other market participants and that is the mechanism by which it affects stock prices that's that's exactly right i'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, articles uh blow up as example here. So what happened uh, to, given what the information we have right now, seems to be that uh, uh, it started with, the, the blow up really started with the Viacom uh, secondary offering. Which is a pinprick, right? I mean, this is what happened. Like it was a, it was a pinprick. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like bombs dropping on a city or anything right. outrageous going on. It was, right. it was like a, a secondary that was offered by a company with arguably overpriced equity. And, and that was enough to uh, start the dominoes tumbling. Which is a correct economic reaction from that company's management perspective. If your stock price is way overvalued, let's just, uh, right, let's just capitalize on that overvaluation and issue more stocks to the market since there's a demand for that. Uh, Archegos levered itself up, I think, uh, for quite a while, but between January into mid 
March, they levered up by about 5x of their, their capital. Um, um, and a basket of names, uh, ten, very concentrated. Uh, a lot of those, these are Chinese internet names, uh, also Viacom, Discovery, and a couple of uh, American names. Um, some of the holding, it was so large, it went up to 35% of these names by Archigo alone. And uh, you can probably argue that the entire move for Viacom, for example, from January all the way into uh, early March, from that $40 all the way to $100 was uh, most entirely the doing of, of Archigo's purchase of, of their stocks. So it's, it's the, the float is kind of... Uh, uh, small in comparison with how much they bought. And they used a derivative uh, product from the big banks, um, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, uh, and uh, Nomura. These are, the, these are the names that are well known. I think Deutsche Bank also was involved. Um, it's a total return swap, which basically allows them to trade these stock, allows the hedge fund or a family office to trade these names like a future contract. You don't have to cough up 100% of the capital in order to buy these stocks. You can just uh, you can just buy the difference between the uh, stocks future prices versus the current the, the price when you enter into the contract. So it's like a it's like a future contract for a single name. Or, or, or CFD, com contract for difference uh, for people who are familiar with that in, in Europe. And they, the, the banks, uh, Goldman and Morgan Stanley, they made a lot of fees out of it. If you look at the Goldman's Q1 uh, earning report yesterday, their investment banking arm had a 60% return on equity for the first quarter of this year. 60%. That's... Uh, a lot of those are coming from these uh, derivative products they sell to their, their, their clients. Basically, they allow the clients to lever up. They extract a fee out of these, these products um, because the, the financing cost for Goldman to enter into these contracts are very, is very low. And on their own book, they buy the underlying stocks for the clients, and then they short these underlying stocks through this derivative. Because the, the, the clients along these derivatives, Goldman are short these derivatives, but for Goldman on their book, it appears to be a zero delta position, meaning they're, they're flat, they're, they're unaffected by the movement of the stocks. But they have to pay certain price for that, which is the regulatory balance sheet cost. So if you carry the derivative, you also carry these underlying stocks, you, your balance sheet, you have to, you have to cough out some capital in order to hold these, these positions uh, on your book. There's there are risk associated with it. Uh, there are counterparty risks, for example, what if Arch, Arch Go went bankrupt and they went bankrupt, right? But uh, these banks, they are, they've been receiving a lot of stimulus money because their clients were receiving a lot of stimulus money from the, from the government. And in order to boost their own earnings, they have been using this money to basically underwrite these um, derivative contracts to their hedge fund, to their family office clients. 
And, and uh, through these leverage, we've seen a huge amount of speculation in the market right now. If we talk about, for example, inflation expectation or how much uh, debasement we would think US dollar would suffer from all the uh, money printing or the monetary expansion coming from the Fed and from the uh, federal government through fiscal spending, we're no way getting the 10x or 6x increasing the asset prices. There's, there's, no, there's no immediate danger for US dollar to depreciate by factor of 10 or factor of six, given how much money is printed. It's not a lot of money, but the asset price has grown up by 6x or 10x in many, many names. Uh, Bitcoin, for example, has gone up by 6x. Uh, Viacom, at the, uh, before it crashes, it went up by 10x. A lot of these names are going up completely out of proportion with how much uh, fiat money debasement we should expect from the, the money printing that has been conducted. So how this is done, which is fascinating, because if you can understand this, if you can anticipate this, then you can probably front run a lot of these trades and uh, uh, make quite a bit of money yourself. So that's, uh, that's why it's, I'm, I'm very uh, interested and I'm still learning a lot from the market right now and studying this, this phenomenon. When um, Archegos went belly up, they, the effect on the markets was sort of short-term complicated because they had basically been long these individual names but short the indices. So part of the blowout was like covering the, the index short. Uh, yes. And then on, the, on balance, it's kind of bearish because the banks take out take big losses, a billion here, a billion there. Um, and that sort of dries up their overall risk bearing capability by a, by a little bit. I mean, these are big banks, but it's not great when they lose a couple billion. Uh, right. Well, so this is also a very interesting situation. So I th think the majority of the loss was, was born by Credit Suisse and Nomura. Goldman and Morgan Stanley, as well as Deutsche Bank in this case, front ran uh, Credit Suisse and Nomura, and they didn't suffer much loss at all. That was a very interesting aspect of the story. And so if Goldman takes the loss, then basically like their immediate risk bearing capacity would go down by roughly speaking, the amount of the loss times 20, right? Which would That's be... Right. The the average amount that they would kind of lever up things. Um, but if Credit Suisse or Numora takes the loss, it's more complicated because it's international domicile or something, I assume. Exactly. Their regulation is slightly different. The Fed is pretty strict on the, uh, the, the balance sheet sides for the banks. Uh, Japan, I believe they are being in a discussion whether they're going to extend the SLR exemption that we have here for another year. So for Japanese banks, they don't have the immediate uh, pressure to, to be very careful with their balance sheet. Uh, Credit Suisse have this issue. They actually had this issue since January 1st. They are under the constraint that they shouldn't increase their balance sheets too, too large. But uh, UBS already exceeded that. And there was like okay, we don't care it's, if we exceed it. And then they, the, the, the Swiss uh, regulatory body is called the FINMA, didn't do anything. Uh, okay, they could not 
do certain amount of buybacks or dividend payout. That seems to be okay with them as long as they're still making money. So credit, UBS is already below that threshold. Their balance sheet is over 20x. It's about almost 25x, 23 to 24x of their, their capital. Um, credit Suisse is going to join the rank, uh, probably already joined the rank as well because of the loss. And uh, they, they probably will be... So here's how, how it's uh, calculated. This is, a, this is a regulation that... Uh, where banks' balance sheet, the average value of that throughout the quarter is compared to their capital at the end of the quarter. So on March 31st, June 30th, et cetera. And this is looked at at the bank holding company. So their commercial banks arm and investment banks arm added together. Look at this overall bank holding companies level and their CFO are very uh, sort of to be on top of this. And if they're falling below that uh, 5% or 20, they exceed the 20X ratio, their ability to pay uh, dividend to do buyout will start to get impaired. If they dip even more, the, the ability to pay, to pay out uh, bonuses, I think that's a 3% threshold. If they're below 3%, they cannot pay out any bonuses at all that will be impaired. So the bank CFOs will probably look at this very carefully and started to throttle on how quickly the balance sheet will grow. If when the balance sheet is growing too fast because of their extending leverage to their clients or when they suffer big losses, I think uh, Credit Suisse probably look at it and realize they're close to the 5% limit. So they decided to uh, defer this a little bit. So their unwinding did not happen at all until April 1st. I think the unwinding really stopped maybe on Tuesday this week. So they dragged this on for almost two weeks behind everybody, just so, so that their, so that for their Q1, um, their financial uh, report, can look better and the loss will not be realized until Q2, which will probably, it's past up the point of no return. So they're just gonna uh, deal with it. But that made a very interesting market dynamic. We had a lot of, I, was, I would attribute 50% of the rally between uh, April 1st through the Tuesday this week to the continued unwinding of uh, Archigo's position. Really? I would be surprised by that just because even if the S&P position was, or the, the, even if the ES position was 10, 15 billion or whatever, um, 20 billion, it, it seems like that would be absorbable. The volume has been pretty low in the past uh, two weeks. And one telltale sign of that is to do a correlation between ES, between the S&P future, versus uh, the names in that basket that Archco has been holding, for example, GSX, which is a Chinese uh, educa online educational company, uh, or if you do a correlation with, uh, uh, with uh, Viacom, with Baidu, uh, and you look at it, it was, has been anti-correlated until Tuesday. That was the other aspect of this I wanted to get into was um, since 
we chatted last the uh, battle of short sellers versus the rest of the market reached its culmination in GameStop and GameStop sort of triggered the popular imagination. There were lots of stories about this. It was right. It was all over the place. Um, so a decent part of the Archigo story is that he's actually taking super long positions in companies that are really popular among short sellers. Like I remember GSX had at least one prominent like short seller report written about it in late summer. Um, and GSX was certainly a popular target among short sellers. So there uh, was this, you think, part of his strategy to sort of target high short interest stocks? Or did he just sort of randomly uh, land on these companies that happen to be of interest to short sellers? I think he just ran a thematic uh, investment strategy to me. He picked a basket of names that are similar uh, in, in a similar industry and uh, relatively low in the float and he really cornered the market. And this is the other thing about how the leverage being issued by the, by the investment bank arms of the big banks. Uh, because the stocks are held by the big banks, and they were canceled by these short uh, swap position the bank have with their clients. You will never see those in the 13 Fs. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And that was my next question was, um, I assume that it avoided the 13 F requirement and then, which I guess as a family office, Archegos didn't have, but then it would also probably avoid the 5% threshold. Yes, exactly. Cause he's, uh, uh, spreading it out to different uh, different uh, prime brokers. Presumably, the cost of entering into one of these is higher than the expected cost of basically having the position on your own books, like trading in and out of it. So, um, if that's the case, what is what is the motive? Is it is it simply this regulatory runaround? It's the leverage. He can get cheap leverage. He can leverage by up by 5x this way. Otherwise, if he carried on his own book, he, there's no leverage. If you carried it on your own books, you um, if you have a big decline in your portfolio, now your leverage ratio goes up tremendously. You might have some forced liquidation. Presumably, there's the daily capital settles or whatever that also provide for some forced liquidation. Right. Is that true? So it's it's sort of similar to holding the position. Right. It is exactly true. And that's how the domino started to fall because the Viacom liquidation, the Viacom probably triggered the first batch of margin calls, which then triggered the margin calls of, and then triggered false selling of his other positions, which triggered additional margin calls on the other positions because those are falling out by 20% as well. And it's just propagates and then liquidate his entire portfolio. So going to another uh, big picture issue that you hit on, you said banks are getting a big inflow because their customers are getting big stimulus checks. Um, and basically, it's fair to say that if they were responding to this inflow by lending a bunch of money for consumers to buy things or lending to businesses, that would be inflationary, but instead they're basically lending it to hedge funds and other investors and it's, it's 
blowing up asset prices. Is that a fair generalization? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, 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 like the, the conventional wisdom people may have is that the Fed, when Fed prints money, when the government, the U.S. government does uh, deficit spending, uh, that money will flow into commercial banks, which will turn into loans to consumer and companies, which will increase the monetary M2, right? The monetary base. And then uh, we were limited by the the, the, the fractional reserve uh, ratio before the 10%, which means you can lever this up or you can uh, have M2 equals 10 to 10x of the base money. And that's how inflation uh, occurs. It's not happening at all. The total loan, the commercial loan, and a consumer loan issued by the, by the US domestic banks uh, throughout this COVID crisis did not grow in IOTA. And if you look at Q1 data, it actually shrunk a little. So what's behind this is that the margin on these loans are so low these days, banks are just not interested in issuing loans and the bank somehow perceive the risk is higher in issuing loans to consumer and to the to the business, uh, than letting the investment banks arm to issue loans to uh, stock speculators. I, I count myself as a speculator too, because these days, uh, like the, the long term investment thing, theme is really hard to do with all the asset prices being completely inflated, and it's really just everybody's doing speculation, short term speculation on the market. Tell me if this is an unfair generalization of your model. The model is that an increase in bank reserves translates into an increase in security lending, which then translates into an increase in asset prices. And conversely, a decrease in bank reserves translates to a decrease in lending, which translates to a decrease in asset prices. And this plays out over a relatively short period of time. So you can you can take a look at, for instance, weekly changes in reserves and translate that into probability distributions of what's likely to happen for for asset prices. Is that is that fair? It used to be the case in the past uh, twelve months. Ever since we started the. Uh, COVID relief program from the Fed and also from the Treasury, the CARES Act and all that. But in mid-February, we kind of hit the ceiling, the upper bound of how large the banks financially can expand. And we somehow flip into this very weird opposite regime when the bank reserve, which is basically the cash that coming out of the, the Fed and the Treasury, start to crowd out the the, the the allowance or the or the provision that the banks could give out to get to for hedge fund to uh, to lever up their position, so we get into a, a very weird opposite situation every time. There's large inflow of bank reserve. For example, after the March 17th, there was 270 billion dollar of money flowing into the market and flowing into the banks in one day from the, the, the third stimulus check, the market crashed the day after because the, the bank balance sheets was uh, kind of overbloated and the, their, their treasurers have to uh, cut their exposure in other areas to keep their balance sheet in control. So would you say that, that this regime is analogous to like 
September of 2019 at the time of the uh, repo repo crisis? This is actually more, this is worse than that. This is more like the 2018 QT situation where you have this very short-term one day or two day impact on the market because of uh, a huge amount of money being released by the treasury. In terms of the mechanism, the the model, it it does require, if I'm correct, that basically market participants respond to improving liquidity conditions in predictable ways. In other words, if liquidity provision towards, say, hedge funds is more favorable, they predictably buy stocks. And if it's less favorable, they predictably sell stocks. Is that a fair generalization? Yes, that's that's how it's working uh, in the second half of the quarter for the most part. And that if if that has been sort of a cornerstone assumption of your models for for some time. Am I am I right? Only since mid February. Only okay. since mid February, and that's a very strong correlation. It's correlated way too uh, nicely um, on a day to day basis. Uh, it correlated really well between February fifteenth uh, through March March. 30th, I would say. Do you have thoughts as to like why participants respond this way? Or do you just take it as empirical, like this, the state of the world? Um, because there's nothing, there's nothing that um, forces people to buy a bunch of assets when liquidity is very available. Like you don't, you don't have to keep the foot jammed on the accelerator all of the time. Um, right, so right. is it, is it some sort of um, institutional incentives that that go this way, or has this just tended to be the behavior of U.S. capital market participants that they're like as aggressive as they're allowed to be? Like, do you have any any viewpoints as to as to why this is the case? Very good point. Well, so first of all, this is is a empirical observation. I, I wish I'm, I'm the fly on the wall of those uh, big banks uh, treasurer's office when they call their. Uh, uh, primary brokerage arms to 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 reining their their uh, leverage or or lending to their clients, but uh, what we can see from the bank's uh, balance sheet data back in February and March, which you Fed reports those with a two weeks delay, you can see them actively reducing their balance sheet size with respect. With their bank reserve, they're actively actually cutting down their balance sheets more week by every single week. They cut more on their balance sheet when the bank reserve is going up. They they have relatively little control of bank reserve. When when the federal government is sending out stimulus money, the bank cannot say no, right? They have to take it in. And once they take it in, and it's in big quantities because we're sending out you know hundreds of billions of dollars in some, on some of those days then they have to do something to the rest of the balance sheet. And you can, the way I look at it is this. Well, once you have a couple of banks, big primary brokers, unable to extend more leverage to their clients, and then they wish their clients will reduce their, um, their exposure, then any catalyst in the market, any stalling pressure, you'll find no buyers. And that could trigger a pretty substantial move in the market downwards. It will recover later on, right? Um, 
because this is a temporary, banks will be able to uh, push their reserve to, for example, money market fund, which will be able to take these uh, money and put in federal Federal Reserve's a reverse repo program, for example, that takes time. That takes a couple of days to complete, to push hundreds, tens of billions of dollars to other places. So just during those uh, time when they were struggling with their balance sheet, if there's any catalyst in the market, it tends to become a amplified move and it moves down. And if you have a 5% move in the market, that's plenty to uh, profit from it because the Fortunately, the implied volatility of index options are very low, are still very low. This is something that also related to the GameStop you mentioned earlier. Yes, GameStop moves a lot. Still, it still moves a lot for that name. But it's really difficult to make money out of that name, even if you're a good model, because the implied volatility of that option is way too high. To make good return on your bets right now is on the index options because the index option has an implied volatility of about 20%, 28%, and sometimes uh, you know 17% on SPX. But GameStop have 100% implied volatility. So all the calls and pulls are way too expensive. And uh, the, the risk-reward ratio is just not good for, 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 for GameStop. It's very useful. It's, it's, GameStop is still very useful signal to let you know whether the market is in the risk on and risk off move, especially for the intraday uh, movement of market, you will see that the risk on uh, sentiment recovers first in these highly uh, speculative names than the index, than the index like uh, SPX or, or QQQ. Uh, but it's, hard to profit from those moves on the single names itself. The index, I, in my opinion, is much easier to, to profit from. So if we take a snapshot in time right now, um, what are the liquidity measures that you are paying close attention to and you're writing about? Because subscribers to Liquidity Matters, they are getting outlooks on the basis of the short-term effects of Fed policy and fiscal policy. So why don't you uh, take listeners through exactly what you're writing about week by week? And, right. and like what is important at this moment in time and for maybe the next couple months that you think you're going to be paying very close attention to? Very good question. So the one of the most important thing is the bank reserve levels for the big banks. For the big banks who are the you know top 10 prime brokers. We don't have that data. Nobody has that data except for the banks themselves. They don't release it, Fed doesn't release it. So the closest proxy for that will be the total bank reserve of all banks that has accounts with the Federal Reserve, including foreign banks, including smaller banks. And this is the case, this is helpful because uh, so far most of the large inflow and out of outflow of the bank reserve is caused by the stimulus and tax of the federal government. Today is a tax day. So we're gonna see about $60 billion of it outflow from the banks into the treasury's account, 60 billion. This is the, this, today is an estimated tax uh, due date for the first quarter, right? And uh, the, on the 25th, you're gonna see a huge outflow from the uh, 
Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, these uh, mortgage-backed security underwriters to the banks when they pay out the mortgage uh, prepayment interest uh, every month. That's about 170 billion for this year. That's a big out of inflow for the banks and bank reserves. These are the days I track, and these are the large inflow and outflows that could move the market when the banks are concerned about the balance sheet size. I don't think they're concerned right now for April because this is the beginning of the quarter. They need to make money. They need to increase their profit for this quarter. And the biggest profit comes from you know, investment banking, which is giving leverage to let your, let your clients to, to speculate for now. And they will average out their balance sheet size later, for example, in the second half of May and in, in June. That's when the time comes and they will start to sell or force their clients to, to um, close their positions. And which we can actually see that every single, since the beginning of this year, every single month's end will have something to blow up. In January, it was G, uh, GameStop shorts blow up, right? In the second half of uh, February, that was a huge sell-off in ARC, Kathy Wood's positions, uh, and it's still pretty low. Uh, the, 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 that entire basket hasn't recovered yet. And in, March, in late March, that's Archer Gold, right? Even though right now in, the, in April, we're in the risk on move and things are just uh, going up and up, for the, uh, especially for the, the, the blue chips names. I think when we hit the second half of May, the bank will freak out again at their balance sheet size and they will have to trim. And at that point, we're gonna just track the, the, the um, total bank reserve very closely and look at their day-to-day -day movement. As soon as the correlation between the index with the with the um, so the stock index with the bank reserve levels reestablishes, that will be a good time to make some really short term trades. Uh, and uh, at that time, I think we'll probably see some uh, nice correlation between the two, just like the second half of uh, of the uh, February and and most of the March. Now, can you um, take us through the fundamental accounting that? that implies that, say, a big influx of stimulus checks will force the bank to curtail activities. I, I take it that it's basically you have the bank equity, which is what it is, and goes up slowly as the bank records profits quarter by quarter or what have you. And then, um, and then that equity can support an asset base of roughly let's say 20 times the, the equity and, and basically is the way to think about it that when the stimulus checks come in, that's an increase in demand deposits that the bank holds and demand deposits are liabilities. So like they have to, is, 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 it, is it just that simple? Yeah, that's exactly the case. And then uh, banks sometimes can forecast the inflow and anticipate for it so they can do some proactive uh, maneuver to, to trim their balance sheet a little bit. But uh, sometimes they really have no idea who will get the money at what time, for example, the stimulus check. 
uh, it's not entirely clear what clients will get it and what client will not. Um, and then they have to do, use a balance sheet manager afterwards. Uh, so for the accounting part, for the banks, um, a typical number, so let's look at, uh, for example, uh, JP Morgan. They have about, uh, as of March 31st, $237 billion for the capital. And their balance sheet size is about $2.8 trillion. The ba this balance sheet, uh, different, uh, different assets are counted differently. The derivatives are counted differently from the uh, for US treasuries and it's counted differently from the repo exposure. So every, every, different, every different type of assets is, is counted using different accounts. Um, Accounting. The deposit for them is counted as 100% uh, starting April 1st as a balance sheet. And at the same time, that is also the low, lowest yielding asset for them. So it's only yielding five basis points for them from the IOER, the interest over reserve that the Fed is paying out. They're also paying 17 basis points for the FDIC. So this is literally an asset for them that has really, really no margin at all. So they don't want deposits and your, your theory also is that they don't really want to do loans because that's low margin as well. Yeah, they don't want to do, but they have to keep the, and the deposit basically was force fed by the government to them through their clients a lot of times, mm -hmm. right? So once we're hitting this, we are at this uh, balance sheet ceiling and they want to keep their ability to pay out uh, dividends and do, buy out, do buybacks, they want to make sure that the balance sheet can be trimmed down into a proper size every time they were force-fed. And that becomes a pressure, selling pressure on their, on their derivative desk. And so what, what is the um, accounting for like a prime brokerage activity? So let's just take a simple example where they have a prime broker client and that client um, it runs levered 2X. Um, so they, they just have a billion and they, and they run 2 billion long and it's done through the prime brokerage account. What, what is the accounting for that? The current accounting is to Basel 3 that the notional exposure of the derivative times 5%, that is with the that is entered into the total balance sheet calculation but what if it's just it's just an equity position that is um the prime broker is lending a billion and um the hedge fund has two billion long exposure on a billion in equity so let's take our articles as example again right so assuming they had a 10 billion exposure, and then simplify things a little bit. Let's say they have a 10 billion exposure with Goldman on Viacom and uh, uh, Discovery and uh, all these names, to the swaps. Then for Goldman, it was 10 billion exposure in the derivative that was sold to Archigos and 10 billion exposure for the equity that they're actually holding. These are netting out, assuming there's no counterparty risk from Archigos. But for Goldman, there is a 5% balance sheet cost for the derivative part. There's a 5 to 6% uh, cost on the, on the equity part. 
for Goldman as well. So that part does not net out. Just by holding that thing for the clients, there is about 12% times the $10 billion notional value. I'm adding the two together. So, but that's uh, about uh, $1.2 billion of, uh, of, uh, of uh, energy cost for, for Goldman. In the pre-Dodd-Frank days, like the bank would respond to um, equity or liability changes by possibly responding in their own positioning, like their own trading. And then in today's world, they, they sort of do it via their prime brokerage lending activities. Right. Dog Frank is, is they do it uh, directly because uh, there was no balance sheet cost like this. Now there's a balance sheet cost, and this is the most efficient way for, for the primary brokers to carry these positions. Uh, so you see a much greater use of total return swaps and uh, portfolio swaps. And free uh, Dog Frank investment banks can net a lot of these exposure out. They didn't have to do this so-called supplemental uh, leverage ratio calculation every quarter. They only need to do a risk-based uh, leverage calculation. Now they have to look do this, uh, this uh, supplementary uh, leverage ratio calculation, which doesn't care about your risk exposure and doesn't care about your netting. It's like your notional exposure, uh, a certain percentage have to be covered by your capital. In your world of liquidity flows, Let's just suppose that everyone like followed closely your model. What would what would, would be the news releases that would be especially important? Like, what are the news releases that you get fired up about in terms of inputs for your model? Uh, you mean the surprises or the most the big events that they were showing up? That will show like the big the big events that are weekly or monthly um, news events, like data updates. Of course, the most exciting thing will be the large liquidity changes to the bank reserve uh, usually happens in the second half of the month. Um, there are several sources of that. So Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, they do a lot of those uh, prepayments and the principal and prepayments uh, cash flow in the middle of the month and then again on 25th. That's one of the big things I've been watching nearly every single month. As soon as the correlation between SPX and the, the bank reserve reestablishes itself in the second half of the month, the second half of the quarter, that's something definitely really worth watching. And because we're having such a huge refinance uh, activity right now, uh, if you look at the mortgage-backed security origination, we actually increased threefold in comparison to 2020 levels right now. That's like 100, 100, like $190, 180000000000 billion of money being, being traveled around every month on the 25th. That's a big one. Uh, also, various tax dates from the Fed, uh, big payment from the stimulus, those can add up to, uh, it, it, those are smaller in a single day flow, but uh, over let's say three or four days, they could add, add up to quite a large number, like 120, $150 billion. 
So if we look at the liquidity forecast model I'm having right now, looking into the future, we're actually in a very rare situation. Uh, as next Tuesday, we'll be in a rare situation. We're going to have a, about $600 billion of inflow into the reserve nearly every single day from next Tuesday all the way into the first half of May. And last time that happened, it was uh, August of last year when we had a, that big rally in the, in the stock market and then ended up with a huge correction in early September. So if there's a lot of, uh, if there's accumulatively a large move from the treasury because of its spending pattern, that's something I'm watching for. And often, also something I watch for is sometimes there's a, a big payment day and big ex expense day from the federal government, it's just back to back, large. So uh, for example, yesterday we had a hundred $20 billion coming out of uh, both Fed and the uh, GSE into the banks. And today we have $130 billion going back into the Fed because of how GSE run their, um, run their uh, repayment, uh, they call it uh, remittance day uh, flow. These are the cancellation events. I watched them as well, it's just if, if the market moves, uh, have a, a sort of a false breakout and things like that, it's a good time to do a counter move. But I don't think it's right now the market is driven a lot by the liquidity flow directly. It's more by the option market and uh, uh, how people speculate using the, using the seemingly um, cheap money from the, from the big banks. I want to get into the option in a bit because you have a second newsletter that you're developing that relates to uh options effect on on the market as a whole um but i want to talk a bit more about this uh liquidity transmission mechanism so you're saying that we're at a point of tightness such that let's say uh a new round of checks is issued tomorrow, surprise, like everyone gets another 600 in their, in their accounts, that um, increases liabilities for banks. Um, and so they uh, will tend to cut down on their uh, prime brokerage activities or, or securities lending, and that will tend to be a negative for uh, stocks at this moment in time, like a very short-term negative. Right. Right. But, it'll, it'll bounce back later. Yeah, yeah, it'll bounce. So that's the part that I wanted to get to because that logically is a bit of a disconnect. Like if you print money and give it out to people, that would seem to be inflationary and should be good for uh, equity prices in the long term. It will so be inflationary only if the M2 grows uh, by the same amount, right? If the M2 does not grow at all, if we look at the M2 through the past 15 months, right? Starting from the COVID crisis, M2 grow only by about uh, three to four trillion, which is equal to the U.S. deficit spending. So M2 was pretty much entirely a coming out of the federal government deficit spending. Nobody else is creating money. Yeah. 
So it's a very mild growth. And that's why we haven't seen a proportion, like US dollar hasn't developed by a factor of two, even though the Fed financially grow. I was gonna get to that. So that's an interesting thought exercise is what would happen if the liquidity provision by uh, banks was used to buy all foreign assets instead of domestic assets. Um, that would tend to be very dollar negative, right? And it's uh, um, happening right now in the past couple of uh, weeks, that dollar has crashed quite a bit because this the recent liquidity flow seems to uh, be going more to the foreign banks as opposed to the domestic banks. And uh, uh, yeah, so, we need to have foreign banks to take up more bank reserves in order to, to have dollar to devalue more. But the foreign banks, uh, if you look at the recent table I made for the top 10 um, prime brokers, foreign banks like Deutsche Bank, Barclays, UBS, BNP, they are all bloated in their balance sheet size too. All of them already breached their 5% limit on SLR. And their own central banks are also printing money as well, increasing the supply of their bank's reserves. So every banks, every single bank's out there, pretty much, except for like Wells Fargo and the BNY, they are too bloated in the balance sheet and they don't have a lot of room to take in uh, more cash from the from the from the federal government. Uh, they could temporarily take some more because, like Japanese banks, they don't really care. But a year later, they will have to care, and they're probably planning for that too. They're not completely letting loose their the balance sheet size and just let people to deposit money. Um, so yeah, so we need more foreign buyers of U.S. assets so that the U.S. dollar can flow out. Uh, if you want inflation. And I, I want to dip back to the Archegos example for one for one moment, because um, securities lending has always thought to be very profitable in part because the collateral was so reliable and the prices were freshly marked moment to moment. So if the loan was in danger of not being paid back, you could the creditor could liquidate and get get the uh, Get the money back and so it was it, not quite risk-free lending but like almost risk-free lending right right and in the great financial crisis we saw the dangers of kind of lending on very illiquid assets and we had the uh banking sector decimate its equity by um loaning on real estate that declined in price um no one really knows the nature of security lending at the at the banks. Archegos is like a first shot that says, hey, maybe the securities lending is a little bit looser than we thought before. Um, do you see like systematic danger, like whoops, we blew up a lot of equity because we had more securities lending than people thought on looser terms than people yeah. thought and like stocks went down and it wasn't our fault and like boom, the equity's gone. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Uh, I don't know when. I think there's a pretty high chance, uh, like 72% chance happening in the next uh, two or three years. So uh, the analogy you drew is very good, actually. So back in 2008, a lot of it was AIG, right? So everybody thought they bought the CDS from AIG and they're safe because the risk was basically laid down to AIG. Nobody thought about the 
counterparty risk from AIG. What if AIG cannot pay all these credit defaults off, right? This time it's similar from an Arch Gold problem. It's like everybody thought Arch Gold will be able to cough up new capital if the, the stock moved too much, but nobody thought it was too concentrated in Arch Gold. They wouldn't be able to repay and it didn't. And Credit Suisse suffered about $4.7 billion, maybe even more loss from that. And nobody is regulating Archer goals. Uh, AIG was bailed out last time. This time, you know, it's more like an LTCM situation, but luckily it was small. Article, relatively speaking. Well, and it, it didn't tip over dominoes, right? It didn't it didn't lead to distressed selling, causing prices to decline, causing more distressed selling, causing prices to decline in that Minsky moment kind of way. It it was very isolated. It was almost there. I got some panic calls on that Friday when it first started. It was when people wasn't sure which bank has what uh, exposure, it was pretty close. Uh, but luckily it, w- it wasn't affecting US banks. So. <laughs> and, and people were panicking because the moves in the individual names that were being liquidated were so large that it seemed weird, right? And there were rumors that uh, Goldman and uh, Morgan Stanley may have uh, huge losses. Last thing before we get into the, the options market and the options newsletter, um, I still see that the transmission mechanism relies on the idea that if credit is available, the funds with access to credit will use it to buy assets. Right. And no one is forcing them to do that. Um, so... I guess like as this has gone on over the past year and assets have become broadly inflated, right. um, do we expect this mechanism to continue to hold? Because like, I mean, I grant the idea that empirically it does seem to hold. I'm, I'm just wondering like, is it just a, uh, an absolute compulsion to, to buy these assets? Like, why is it that, um, the funds don't just say, um, I get it that there's a lot of credit available at, at attractive terms, but there's nothing I want to use the credit to buy. Uh, that's a very philosophical question. Uh, I, given what I observed so far, I think the appetite for more risk is still very large. Just look at it. Uh, Bitcoin, for example, right? It has already gone up by... 600 percent uh and uh, it's still going up and people nobody is worried about that a u.s dollar is not devaluing by 6x it hasn't devalued by 6x in the past year and it's not going to devalue by another 6x in the next year and but pe- many people are believing that the bitcoin has no problem going up by another 6x uh not me but the, many people are believing that so um if you look at the mechanical forces in the market, for example, uh, risk parity, look at, if you look at uh, some risk controlled fund, they tend to believe that when the volatility, the realized volatility drops, the market has to go up. So they, they, they piling even more, um, they increase their leverage, CTAs have certain uh, momentum chasing strategies. All of these are pretty 
large forces are kind of doing the self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, you know buying begets more buying. Um, they will take over. They'll take up whatever leverage that's provided to them. And then uh, back to your question about this money creation earlier. I think right now most of the money creation is happening in the asset market because the lending for you know leverage for speculation that's lending too. Right. And it's it's highly profitable for the investment banks. So why not? This is not lending happening for the real economy. This is not lending for the for the main street. This is lending for speculators, and it's cheap and it's making um, tons of money for the banks. So the banks are focusing on doing this, right? And, and that's money creation too. We don't track that in M two or even M three, right? Because this is like the the margin debt. This is like the 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 shadow banking system through repos, through this uh, uh, swaps or derivatives. They're creating uh, buying powers. Talk to me about your upcoming newsletter. You um, have had two major parts to your model in the past. One is liquidity conditions related to Fed and uh, fiscal policy. And the other part is uh, option market behavior. Liquidity Matters, the newsletter that's been out for a couple of months, has focused solely on the liquidity conditions piece. And then um, you're doing a separate newsletter to focus on the on the option market piece. Talk to me about that newsletter and um, whether uh, you kind of need both both parts of the of the picture, um, how and how those two newsletters are going to work together. For me, I looked at how the equity market works right now is that it's basically there are two main driving forces. One is the monetary and fiscal policy, which is what Federal Equities and Liquidity Matter newsletter is about. And the second piece of puzzle is the option market. The, the tail that wags the dog, uh, the dog being the underlying uh, stocks and stocks indices, which it has been the case since 2015, 16, when weekly stock options has been widely traded. And uh, this is very sort of a very interesting phenomenon because the market keeps changing in its regime where sometimes it's the index options which can have you know, hundreds of billions of uh, notional values every month at expiration leading the charge of uh, what is moving the market, the, uh, the rolling of these uh, the option positions uh, every month from either they are recently, more recently is uh, people speculating on the calls. And previously in 2018 to 19 was uh, the rolling of the defensive, the callers, the, the, the out of money puts they buy to hedge their positions. These got rolled every month. This rolling of the positions, the hedging behavior of the market maker of the options, uh, we, you hear a lot of uh, people talking about the gamma of the market, that kind of play all sides uh, a dominant role in the, in the stock market movement in the short term. So, so much so that every month you see, you look at the option expiration cycle, it's very similar. Near the option, monthly option expiration, you have a certain uh, market behavior. And after the market, uh, after the option expiration, you have another different behavior. So generally speaking, it used to be that the market is relatively 
moving very little before the option uh, expiration because how the market maker their hedging behavior kind of clamps the market down. And after the market up, after the option uh, expiration every month, the market will be free to move a lot more. And in the case of uh, that happens for the second half of the month, and oftentimes that's a, a pullback or correction will happen, right? Uh, this has changed quite a bit uh, in the past 12 months when people start to speculate a lot more on single names, on individual stocks that underlies the indices. So SPX, QQQ, those options kind of retreat back a little bit to the, to the um, second place. And then some of the you know, uh, single name options, they can be sometimes with extremely large uh, open interest. GameStops, uh, these names, when they were heavily traded, their, their open interest sometimes was higher than SPY open interest at near the, uh, near the uh, money. So they have a hu the huge amount of money flow into there and these, these are derivative uh, positions and they're rolling their behavior, people close and open those positions and move down the line um, stock prices. So because a lot of these data is processable, and we have, we're seeing um, years of this data. Uh, this helps a lot in forecasting the, the short-term direction of the market in terms of what the market is going in uh, the next week or next two weeks. And uh, I think that's a, sort of a large part of the puzzle for how, where the market is moving right now. It's always been a part of your approach to put the two pieces together. Um, how do you recommend that your followers uh, put together the information from these two newsletters? So, yeah, so the option part is uh, more in the driver's seat longer than the, the, the Fed liquidity. Uh, that's what I rely on most, if uh, even without knowing what else is in the driver's seat. But the Fed, so the option market is kind of uh, the, the information there, you are following a bit through the market. There's what's already there in the option market and that causes a mechanical flow, either it's rolling or delta hedging from the market makers or, or people profit taking from their existing positions. And then there are people who accept new positions. You also have to track the volumes of, of new trades being placed every single day. And that's a little bit following because you're following the big whales and what are the main positions people are doing. It's a little slow. The Fed part is not working all the time. It only works when the bank's concerned about the balance sheet, right? So it works maybe 40% of the time. But once that one is working, well, once that is in the driver's seat, the model gives you a roadmap for what's going to happen in the next four to six weeks with very high accuracy. You know exactly how liquidity is going to fly because uh, Fed and Treasury and uh, Feddy and Frenny, they, they have a very predictable uh, cash flow pattern. So when that is in the driver's seat, it's amazing because then you can, you can then use the option together to make a huge amount of uh, um, profit from, from the market. Uh, talk to me about practical aspects of subscribing. Who, who is your intended audience? Um, where do they go? I noticed that you, you didn't use Substack, which is the popular option for most newsletters right now. 
Um, right. where, where do people go and, and who is the ideal audience? Yeah. So for people who are interested, they can sign up at this website called fed.tips, F-E-D.T-I-P-S. Uh, this is the address for the website and it's, uh, a newsletter. You can, there's a free preview version, which basically laid out the, uh, mechanics, uh, of the theory part of how the, uh, money market plumbing, the uh, big banks' roles in the um, you know leverage provisioning, all these theories and some of the reviews of how the market has behaved under these influences. These articles will be free for everybody who sign up, and they can read the articles about that. And then paid members will get a forecast for the liquidity flow in the next two weeks and my commentary on how that may affect the uh, market, um, mostly on the equity market and sometimes on the rates and uh, uh, foreign exchange market as well. So um, I didn't go with South Stack because I wanna have my own uh, address and have sort of better control on how the comments, uh, how, the, how the slide looks like and potentially adding more information. So the for the option part, I'm, I think I told you before last year, but I was planning something like this. I, there's part of it will be an app uh, that can, it's gonna be a web app and potentially also a, uh, a, a, a mobile phone app that you can get alerts on, on these uh, uh, option trades. And uh, so in order to integrate all of this into a same interface, I've been trying, I've been working, getting these, uh, uh, so I need more control on my website and therefore the, the, the newsletter is, is using Ghost uh, at a different platform to, to send out emails and to uh, publish as opposed to the, to the Substack. That, that makes sense. Substack requires a very strict uh, template. You're not allowed to, or from what I've seen, you can't really add much in the way of graphics and it's got its own look to it. It's very streamed down a lot like Medium. Right, yeah, it's very organized in the way that Substack's newsletter need to look like. All right, well, this was a lot of fun. I, uh, I hope to have you back on once the, the new product is up and running, once the app is up and running, and we can chat about whatever craziness has ensued in, in those months. Yeah, thank you for having me on again. This is, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and uh, the market has been pretty crazy, and hopefully people will be able to profit from it. All right, chat soon. Take care, bye.